Our sermon today is taken from James chapter 5, verse 13 to 20. This is the word of God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is working. Elijah was a man with an age like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, brother. I just love his voice, by the way. I wish I could talk like that. Some people have all the gifts, right? My name is Joe Bynum. I'm one of the pastors here at Covenant City Church. It's so great to be with you all here this morning. and uh, This is a very difficult <clears throat> topic for me to preach on, but I tried my best. So please join me in prayer as we get ready for our sermon. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your presence among us here today, Lord, as your people. We pray, Lord, that you would enlighten our minds, Lord, and our understandings, that we would know today, Lord, that you are the true and living God, Lord, the one who heals not only, Lord, our physical uh, issues, our physical bodies, Lord, but you also heal, Lord, more importantly, our souls. You make us born again, Lord, to a living hope that is within the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, for the greatest miracle of all, which is the transformation of the human heart, Lord, a heart of stone, turning that heart of stone, Lord, into a heart of flesh, making us alive, Lord, and inheritors of all the blessings of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, and we thank you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Dan Doriani is an ordained minister in the PCA, and he's also an author of a popular reform commentary series on the book of James. And in his commentary on our passage today in James chapter 5, he tells this amazing story of a man in his church who was sick and suffering from a viral heart infection. And the symptoms of this man's heart infection, this viral infection, were similar to those of a heart attack. When Mr. Doriani first approached his friend at church, he described his friend as looking sort of gray and lifeless as he reflected on his friend's serious condition. One day at church, Doriani saw his friend and told him that James chapter 5 instructed the elders of the church to lay hands on a sick person and to pray for that sick person's healing. A couple of weeks later, this man approached Doriani and said that he would like to move forward with this process, right, with the process of the elders praying for him. Now, Doriani admitted that no one in his church, in this Presbyterian church, had ever did anything like this before. So in true Presbyterian fashion, they waited six months <laughs> until they worked with this man, right? And, uh, you know, they hoped 
in the meantime, that the poor fellow wouldn't pass away. After finally, though, appointing a night for prayer, the elders all gathered together in a circle, and they laid hands on this man and anointed his head with oil and began to pray for him. And then Doriani says, and I quote, as soon as I began to pray, I had an overwhelming sense that God was, at that very moment, healing my friend. My arms felt what I can only describe as pulses of fire shooting through them. As I grasped my friend's shoulder, heat and energy burned in my hand. I felt that my one hand could lift all of his 230 pounds to the ceiling or push him through the floor if I wished. I knew, Doriani says, that God was healing them, end quote. Now, four days later, when Doriani saw his friend at church, the man called out to him and said, Dan, watch this. And then he quickly ran up a flight of stairs and claimed that he wasn't even tired. As amazing as this story is, I realize, though, that as Presbyterians, we can sometimes tend to be a bit skeptical towards people who have claimed to experience healing from God. And stories like this one might make us feel somewhat uncomfortable. But I think that the scriptures clearly teach that if God wills the prayers of Christians, can be an extremely effective tool for healing in this life. And in my very own experience, in over 20 years as a Christian, I've both heard and read and personally experienced people who have claimed to be healed by God. I remember uh, a man called Billy Snyder. uh, When I was saved back in 1998, I went to this rally And this guy um, was stricken with the AIDS virus through years of intravenous drug use. And yet, in the midst of his drug use, God called this man to be a Christian. He began to go on a tour around the United States glorifying God for healing him of the AIDS virus. And at that time, when I met Billy Snyder, uh, the virus was below detectable in his bloodstream. And so he was married, his life had been changed, and God healed him. And I remember thinking to myself as I was sitting in the audience, as you guys are, that I just want to go up afterward and touch him because I know that God healed that man. And so after the service was over, I went up and I gave him this extremely huge hug because I realized that like God had touched him in a special way. And so I wanted to touch him as well. So I've experienced these stories. And, um, well, today, we've come to the end of James chapter 5. And you might remember that the theme of James chapter 4 and the beginning, the very beginning of James chapter 5, was a theme of humility that James talked about. Chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. In chapter 5, James warns us against certain sins that would demonstrate for Christians a lack of humility. Sins like the abuse of wealth and power in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and impatience in the midst of suffering 
in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. So, in our chapter today, in verses 13 through 20, James continues this theme of humility by teaching us the importance of prayer for all of the Christian life. That true humility lies in bringing all of our cares and concerns before a holy and sovereign God, especially as it relates to sickness and suffering. And I think it's important for us to remember that James's goal in, James, in the book of James, especially in these uh, last verses, is to motivate us as Christians to pray more, to pray to God in spite of our different levels of spiritual maturity as Christians or our various life circumstances that we may find ourselves in. James is motivating us to pray more. And this ability to pray to God uh, this ability to go before the Lord in prayer assumes, of course, that a person has trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that they've been rightly reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ before they can rightly pray to God and ask him for anything. Any the prayer of unbelievers are hypocritical, and God will not hear them. So it assumes that you're a Christian. Now, with that being said, I'd like to examine our passage under two headings, two headings. The first is the participants of prayer, right? The participants of prayer, verse 13 through 16a. And then the second point would be the power of prayer, the power of prayer, uh, verses 16b through verse 18. But first... The participants of prayer. Let me read that for you, verses 13 through 16a. Is anyone, James says, is anyone among you suffering? That is, is any Christian among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed any sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. Now, what I want you to see in this passage is that James identifies for us the participants of prayer in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, he lists at least three groups of people here who are to participate in prayer in the Christian church. Three groups of people who are called to pray, as well as some of the things that they are called to pray for in this very passage that we have just read. So, the three groups of people who are instructed to pray by James are, first, individual Christians, right? individual Christians in verse 13. Second, the elders of the church, the elders of the church in verse 14. And then fellow believers in verse 16, fellow believers in verse 16. So individual Christians, the elders of the church, and fellow believers. In verse 13, James tells individual Christians that they should pray when they are suffering, and when they are cheerful, 
In verses 14 and 15, James instructs the elders of the church to pray for, primarily speaking, in particular, sick people. And in verse 16, James tells fellow Christians to pray for sins that they commit against one another. Pray for sins that they commit against one another. But first, I'll begin with individual Christians. Individual Christians. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Now, the terms that James uses for suffering is found only two other times in the New Testament and can refer to either trouble or adversity in life. Trouble or adversity in life. So what James is telling us is that whenever we, you or I as individual Christians, experience trouble or adversity in our lives, what should we do? We should pray to God and ask him for wisdom to be either delivered from our trouble or be given the ability to stand firm in it and endure it for righteousness' sake. As individual Christians, that means that all of the adversities that we suffer in life should not only draw us closer to God, but that our very first response to all of our troubles and afflictions in life should be what? To turn to God in prayer. To turn to God in prayer. And according to James, that also includes turning to God in prayer when things are going well, too, right? Right? Look at verse 13. Is anyone happy or cheerful? Let him sing praise. See? To put it simply, James is encouraging us, you and me, as Christians, to sing to God. <laughs> no matter how terrible your voice is, right? To sing songs of praise to God whenever we are happy. Why? Because in this way, by doing this, we acknowledge that God is the ultimate source of our joy. God is the ultimate source of our joy. And that whatever it is that we may have received or are presently enjoying that makes us happy, ultimately came from God. So, if your son or daughter excels in sports or academics at his or her school, praise God. If your spouse gets a promotion at work, praise God for that as well. If you and your family members are enjoying a season of relative health and prosperity, praise God. And according to James, the proper way to thank God, the proper way to praise him for our happy hearts is to worship him in our spirits. How? By singing songs of praise to him. You know, my wife and I have lived here in Indonesia for approximately uh, seven or eight months already. And we're surprised at how much we enjoy it and how well we've adjusted to life in this country. But one of the fondest memories of Jackson, Mississippi, is driving in our cars with our family and listening to Christian worship songs on K-Love radio station. And these songs not only brought much joy to our lives, but they also helped us to focus on God and to praise him in the midst of some very difficult and trying seasons in our lives. 
And even today, these songs still minister to our hearts in a very, very special way. Perhaps many of you here today have certain songs that minister to you in a similar fashion. Sing to God. That's what James is telling us. So James advises us as individual Christians to praise God when we are cheerful by singing songs of praise to him. And in the Greek, the phrase, let him sing praise, is in the present tense. And this implies that both praying and singing to God ought to be a part of our everyday lives as believers. So the only appropriate response to all of God's blessings for us on a daily basis is praise, to praise God and thank him by singing. And if, unfortunately, uh, your voice happens to sound as bad as mine do when you sing, you can sing silently to yourself and just over and over say to God, you know, it's the heart that counts, right? <laughs> and when we see this same, we see the same theme of praise played out all throughout the book of Psalms, if you remember uh, like James, the Psalms provide wisdom for us as Christians as we experience both adversity and prosperity in life. You'll see the psalmist uh, alternate oftentimes between uh, psalms that deal with his struggles and adversity in life and psalms that, where he praises God and he breaks out in doxology. And the message in the psalms uh, is that we should praise God in both adversity and prosperity. If you're suffering from adversity, pray. If you're experiencing prosperity, sing. So what James is telling us is that as Christians, we should acknowledge God in all things, in times of prosperity and in times of adversity, in times of health and in times of the coronavirus, in good times as well as bad, in times of sickness and in times of health. And when we respond like this, when Christians respond like this, in keeping with the theme of humility in the book of James, you know what we begin to do? We take self off the throne and we indicate to a watching world that as individual Christians, we are entrusting our very lives to God in all things, all things that may come our way. And that's what we're called to do. So as individual Christians, we should pray whenever we are suffering or whenever we are cheerful. We should pray whenever we are suffering or when we are cheerful. Secondly, though, James tells us that the elders of the church should pray as well, right? The elders of the church should pray as well. And then he tells us specifically what those elders should pray for. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. First of all, I'd like to point out that uh, historically, there have been many suffering Christians 
who have sincerely tried to follow the instructions given to the elders by James in this passage. And yet, unfortunately, they did not experience healing. And that should tell us something, right? That should tell us that God does not act the same way every time for his own glory, for reasons unknown to us. But this is also uh, true for a couple of different reasons. First, because God is absolutely sovereign in deciding those whom he will heal and also deciding those Christians who will glorify him in and through their sufferings. Second, I believe that the promise of healing given in this particular passage has a more narrow or specific application rather than a broad and general application. What do I mean by that? Well, the, the Greek word for sick in verses 14 and 15 actually refers to some sort of debilitating physical illness, a debilitating physical illness, to a situation in which a person is extremely ill or very sick or in some sort of physically weakened condition where they have very little strength to do anything except to summon the elders to pray for them. So this person's situation, as we can see, is quite bleak, to say the least. How do I know that? Well, there seems to be some evidence from the language of this passage in James that lends credence to what I am saying. First of all, notice that the elders are summoned to come and pray for this person, right? They're summoned to him. They're summoned to come and pray for this sick person. So apparently, he is not even well enough to travel. Instead, they must go to him. Second, notice the phrase that's used to describe the posture of the elders as they pray for this sick person. Notice the, notice the phrase that is used. They are not asked to pray with this sick person, right? They're not asked to pray with him in this text, but rather they're asked to pray over him, over the sick person. So clearly, the person in view is somehow bedridden and so very sick that he or she can do very little for themselves in their own strength. So according to the language of this passage, there seems to be a very serious illness that is in view. But this raises the question for us, right, of just how sick does a person have to be before they can ask the elders to pray over them or for them for healing? Well, I believe the answer to this question is that according to the language of the text, the illness, again, would have to be a very serious one. Why? Because I think the logic behind it uh, would serve to protect the elders from the abuse of their time, to protect them from being over-bombarded with requests for healings from people in their congregations. So that's why... Uh, the person has to summon them. And this can only be done on a small scale. Besides, another reason is that as Christians, 
You have to remember this, and this is very important. We have the liberty of praying for ourselves as well as asking other Christians to pray for us in matters that are not quite as serious, right? You have a cold. You have the flu. You have problems in your family. You have problems at work. Ask other Christians to pray for you. Ask other believers to pray for you. Pray for yourself. You don't need to summon the elders in, this, in that situation. So you can see that summoning the elders in this text was done because the person was in dire straits. The person needed uh, to have healing, this miraculous healing done, um, because he, was so, he or she was so sick. So continuing with this theme of summoning the elders, I'd also like to you to notice that according to James... It's the responsibility of the sick person to request that the elders come and pray for them. It's the responsibility of the person who is sick. Look at verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. You see here the emphasis is clearly on the sick believer in the church to request that the elders pray for them. Now, it's important to point out that the reason that the elders are summoned to pray for the sick is not that they are more righteous or holy than anyone else in the congregation, but rather because they've been appointed by God to be overseers of the church, to shepherd his sheep by caring for the physical and spiritual needs of his people. And so on it, what's happening in James is that on an institutional level, uh, inconsistent with uh, Christ saying that I will give you the keys to the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. On an institutional level, the elders of the church function in the way that they forgive sins, right? God has uh, given the church as an institution for the forgiveness of sins, for the edification of his people. And so James is not saying here that elders are more righteous than anyone else, that they themselves have the ability to forgive sins. No, but on an institutional level, the churches minister God's word, and his word declares sinners to be forgiven, sinners to be righteous. Elders don't do that, but they're the means in which God uses to bring that about. Does that help you guys a little bit? Notice the language of verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, what does James mean when he says that the prayer of faith will save the sick person? Is he implying that every time the elders pray in faith over a sick person, that their prayers will be answered? Well, no. You see, we need to remember that Earlier in chapter 4, James had already warned us not to presume anything, but first to say, if the Lord wills. So he could not be saying that healing will occur every single time the elders pray for someone. We must also remember that Jesus himself, when teaching his disciples how to pray, also taught them to pray, thy will be done in every single circumstances. And he himself, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He asks, was there any other way uh, that he could uh, accomplish, that redemption could be accomplished for sinners? He submitted himself to the Father's will by saying what? Not my will, but thy will 
So in other words, what this means for us is that we must be careful not to presume that God would heal us just because we ask him in prayer. But, and I say but, what this also means is that we also need to be careful not to assume that healing, miraculous physical healing, is not something that is completely a thing of the past with no reverence whatsoever for God's people today. Instead, we must come to God in prayer understanding that he is not obligated to heal us when we pray, but that in his mercy and grace, he does often grant miraculous physical healings to his people when they faithfully come to him in prayer. I told you about my friend Billy Snyder, and um, there's also here in an article on patient health from the Chicago Sun-Times, my hometown, Research at San Francisco General Hospital revealed that victims of heart attack, heart failure, and other cardiac problems who were remembered in prayers fare better than those who were not. Cardiologist Randy Bird assigned 192 patients to the prayed-for group and 201 patients to the not-prayed-for group. All the patients were in the coronary intensive care unit. But patients, doctors, and nurses did not themselves know which group the patients were in. Then, prayer group members were scattered throughout the nation and given only the first names, diagnosis, and prognosis of the patients. Something remarkable happened then. The researchers said that the results were dramatic. The prayed-for group had significantly fewer complications than the not-prayed-for group, and fewer members of the prayed-for group died. And listen to this. The latter group, the not-prayed-for group, was five times more likely to develop infections requiring antibiotics, and three times more likely to develop a lung condition leading to heart failure. These findings were also published in the American Heart Association. Incredible. That is utterly incredible. So the point is that if you're facing, as a Christian, some serious illness, call upon the elders of the church and ask them to pray for you. It is truly a means of grace that the Lord has provided for you as his people in your hour of need. What a gracious provision that is from God, who, as the living God, cares so very much about your needs, about my needs, that he isn't just so focused on our eternal well-being and our eternal happiness, but he provides for us even temporarily in our sufferings and afflictions in this life as well. Isn't that awesome? So individual Christians should pray whenever they are suffering or whenever they are cheerful. And the elders of the church should pray for those who are sick, very sick, as we saw. But next, James tells us that fellow Christians, fellow Christians should pray for sins 
that they commit against one another. That is our duty. Look at verses 16 through 18. Verse 16. Therefore, James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So, in verses 14 and 15, we saw that James spoke of specific cases where a person had been so very sick that they needed to call upon the elders of the church to come and to pray for them. Now, James gives us a more general instruction concerning prayer. In verse 16, he tells fellow Christians to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, you might be aware already that this verse has been greatly abused by those in the Roman Catholic Church. They use it to support their doctrine of confessing one's sins to a priest. But there's only one problem with that theory, however, and that is that the word priest is nowhere to be found in verse 16. Neither is it implied. So there's a problem with that. And you can clearly see that there's a major difference between the phrase one another in verse 16 and the word priest. It's obviously not there. As a matter of fact, James is not even telling us to confess our sins to a pastor or to a preacher, right? That's not there either. But what he does say, he does say to confess your sins to one another, to fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there may be certain times uh, when confessing your sins to the elders of the church is absolutely necessary, right? Like uh, times in church discipline and so on. But for the most part, the Bible teaches that sin should be dealt with privately first so that it does not escalate to the level of a public scandal. And I believe that James is urging us as brothers and sisters in Christ to privately confess our sins to anyone that we may have offended in order to seek forgiveness and reconciliation just as Jesus also taught us. Go to your brother first. You remember he said that to his disciples. Perhaps we, you or I, have done something that might have offended another brother or sister in Christ. Let us go to him and seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Maybe there was a verbal disagreement at home between you and your spouse or you and a friend. Go to him. Seek peace and reconciliation. Maybe there's an argument at work over a business transaction or so, some other relational issue that has estranged you from a coworker or someone you care about at work. Go to that person and seek reconciliation. James's advice to us is to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another that we might be healed. That is, that our relationships with the person that we may have offended might be healed 
in the sense of being restored. That's what he's talking about. In the sense of being restored. And this should mean going to the person that you've offended in order to bring about peace and reconciliation in a relationship so that you can either extend forgiveness to that person or either be forgiven by that person for whatever offense you may have committed against them. You know, much like uh, the relationship in marriage, when there's division that exists, think about it. I don't know if you guys ever experienced it, but there, when there's division between you and another brother and sister in Christ or, or, or you and anyone pretty much, it brings a certain level of tension and disharmony to that relationship, right? That's actually a good thing because that, that tells you that there's something wrong with the relationship. And that kind of tension and, and disunity, that disharmony, it contradicts for us as Christians the unity that we're called to, to as the body of Christ, right? Imagine if one of your arms was, was broken, there, wouldn't be, there would be a disunity and a disharmony in the members of your body, right? I know, my leg was broken one time for a month, two months I had a cast on it. And even then, after I got the cast off, I couldn't bend it. It was skinny and weak, and there was no unity in my body whatsoever. And so, in the same way, when there's disharmony and disunity in the church of Christ, it makes things very difficult. Seek unity, James is telling us with other fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that the situation might be resolved and that the relationship might be restored to its proper place. So, we saw the participants of prayer, that the participants of prayer included, first, individual Christians, second, church elders, and then third, fellow believers. Now, in our second and final point, James wants us to see the power of prayer. We saw the participants of prayer, and now James wants us to see the power of prayer. Look at verse 16b with me, would you? The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So far, James has gone into much detail in order to show us how to humble ourselves before God in prayer. He's also said some very amazing things about sickness and healing in this passage, some things that might be new to you or I, that God sometimes works through prayers, prayer of elders, in fact, to heal the physical sufferings of his people. And these things, these things are things that his audience might have been slow to believe on account of their various physical sufferings and trials in this life. And you and I, guess what? We can relate to that as well, right? I'm slow to believe things that the Bible says. When we're suffering or afflicted in life, do we really respond? I mean, do we really believe that God will respond to our prayers to heal us? Do we really believe that our prayers have any effect sometimes on God? 
Do we really believe that when we pray to God, that our prayers make a difference? Or, if you're anything like me, you might be hesitant to ask God to be healed from anything, thinking that it's rather more holy to endure the suffering, right? But you see, James understands this fact about us, right? He understands that we're sinners, that our faith is weak. So he want, what he wants to do, James's goal by mentioning Elijah, is to assure us that our prayers to God in the midst of our sufferings are not in vain. God hears us. They're not in vain. James wants to give us confidence that God both hears and responds to the prayers of his people, regardless of their failures or shortcomings. So he uses the life of the prophet Elijah as an illustration both of the power and effectiveness of prayer. Now, I know what you're thinking. Out of all the other Old Testament saints he could have chosen, why did James use the prophet Elijah in particular? Well, I believe that he does so for several reasons. First and foremost, uh, he uses the example of the prophet Elijah to emphasize the power of prayer. You see, uh, the life of Elijah in the Bible was far from perfect. He was a person who had the same passions and desires as you and I. He was a man, in other words, just like you and me. And any superficial study of his life makes it very clear that he was not perfect by any means. And yet, God responded mightily to Elijah's prayers. You might remember that during the reign of wicked king Ahab, Elijah prayed at God's direction that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years. Later on, when he prayed, the heavens gave rain, we're told, and bore its fruit. But does that mean that God responded to Elijah's prayer because he's more righteous or holy than anyone else? Certainly not. Remember that this was the same Elijah who was so afraid of the wicked lady Jezebel that he ran from her for fear of his life. In fact, he became so very discouraged that he despaired of his life. He not only despaired of his own life, but he asked God to kill him, right? Elijah tried to commit suicide by God directly. So James' point, what James is trying to tell us by using Elijah is this, that the power of prayer does not lie within the person, right? It doesn't lie within Elijah. power of prayer doesn't lie within me. Or within you. It doesn't rely within the person who prays. On the contrary, the power of prayer lies within the God who uses that prayer as a means of carrying out all of his good purposes for his people. James wants us to understand that. Prayer is a means by which God uses to bring about his purposes on life. Irrespective of the person uh, of the goodness or, 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 or faithfulness or worthiness of the person who is praying. So the message of James to us this morning is that true humility lies in bringing all of our cares and concerns to God in prayer. And that includes both our joys and our sorrows. Knowing that God will definitely hear and answer our prayers. Why? Because he's promised to do so in his word. 
Fellow believers, if you hear James' words this morning to you, and you find yourselves discouraged, you find yourselves in the midst of some kind of suffering or difficult circumstance in life, and you're waiting on the Lord to answer your prayers and to let you see the power of prayer in your own life, take heart. Take heart, Christian. Take heart in knowing that there will come a day when the wait will be over, when all sickness will be healed and all prayers will be turned into praise as our faith turns into sight. You see, answered prayers and healings in this life are only a preview of what God has in store for those who love him. So we, we, we would thoroughly impoverish our faith if we focus solely on the gifts, right? If we focus solely on healing and things like that and answered prayer, we totally impoverish our faith. Why? Because we don't need to focus on the gifts but on what those gifts signify, what they tell us. You see, these gifts are only a shadow of the reality that await us at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when all things will be made new and sin and sickness will be no more because of the redemption that was bought for us by another, by a Savior who not only hears our prayers as his people, but also intercedes for us as we patiently await his coming. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord God, that you heal our physical wounds, Lord. But thank you even more, Lord, for what these physical, the healing of these physical wounds signifies. They signify, O oh Lord, that there's coming a day when there will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, Lord, but only joy, pure joy, pure happiness, Lord, in the midst of your presence in heaven. Thank you, Lord, that we have been made partakers of the tremendous blessing that awaits us in Christ Jesus. May you impress this upon our minds, O oh Lord. May you urge us to pray to you, Lord, in faith that we may be healed, that we may partake, Lord, of the blessings forever in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.